英語聞き流しリスニング英語テキストと MP3 音声ダウンロードはホームページからご利用いただけます 88thpp.com 88thpp.com 7. The Diamond Mines Again When Sarah entered the Holly Hung schoolroom in the afternoon, she did so as the head of a sort of procession. Miss Minchin, in her grandest silk dress, led her by the hand. A manservant followed, carrying the box containing the last doll, a housemaid carried a second box, and Becky brought up the rear, carrying a third and wearing a clean apron and a new cap. Sarah would have much preferred to enter in the usual way, but Miss Minchin had sent for her, and, after an interview in her private sitting room, had expressed her wishes. This is not an ordinary occasion, she said. I do not desire that it should be treated as one. So Sarah was led grandly in and felt shy when, on her entry, the big girls stared at her and touched each other's elbows, and the little ones began to squirm joyously in their seats. Silence, young ladies, said Miss Minchin, at the murmur which arose. James, place the box on the table and remove the lid. Emma, put yours upon a chair. Becky. Suddenly and severely. Becky had quite forgotten herself in her excitement, and was grinning at Lottie, who was wriggling with rapturous expectation. She almost dropped her box, the disapproving voice so startled her, and her frightened, bobbing curtsy of apology was so funny that Lavinia and Jessie tittered. It is not your place to look at the young ladies, said Miss Minchin. You forget yourself. Put your box down. Becky obeyed with alarmed haste and hastily backed toward the door. You may leave us, Miss Minchin announced to the servants with a wave of her hand. Becky stepped aside respectfully to allow the superior servants to pass out first. She could not help casting a longing glance at the box on the table. Something made of blue satin was peeping from between the folds of tissue paper. If you please, Miss Minchin, said Sarah, suddenly, mayn't Becky stay? It was a bold thing to do. Miss Minchin was betrayed into something like a slight jump. Then she put her eyeglass up and gazed at her show pupil disturbedly. Becky, she exclaimed. My dearest Sarah. Sarah advanced a step toward her. I want her because I know she will like to see the presents, she explained. She is a little girl, too, you know. Miss Minchin was scandalized. She glanced from one figure to the other. My dear Sarah, she said, Becky is the scullery maid. Scullery maids, er, are not little girls. It really had not occurred to her to think of them in that light. Scullery maids were machines who carried coal scuttles and made fires. But Becky is, said Sarah. And I know she would enjoy herself. Please let her stay, because it is my birthday. Miss Minchin replied with much dignity. As you ask it as a birthday favor, she may stay. Rebecca, thank Miss Sarah for her great kindness. Becky had been backing into the corner, twisting the hem of her apron in delighted suspense. She came forward, bobbing curtsies, but between Sarah's eyes and her own there passed a gleam of friendly understanding, while her words tumbled over each other. Oh, if you please, miss. I'm that grateful, miss. I did want to see the doll, miss, that I did. Thank you, miss. And thank you, ma'am, turning and making an alarm bob to Miss Minchin, for letting me take the liberty. Miss Minchin waved her hand again, this time it was in the direction of the corner near the door. Go and stand there, she commanded. Not too near the young ladies. Becky went to her place, grinning. She did not care where she was sent, so that she might have the luck of being inside the room, instead of being downstairs in the scullery, while these delights were going on. She did not even mind when Miss Minchin cleared her throat ominously and spoke again. Now, young ladies, I have a few words to say to you, she announced. She's going to make a speech, whispered one of the girls. I wish it was over. Sarah felt rather uncomfortable. As this was her party, it was probable that the speech was about her. It is not agreeable to stand in a schoolroom and have a speech made about you. You are aware, young ladies, the speech began, for it was a speech, that dear Sarah is eleven years old today. Dear Sarah, murmured Lavinia. Several of you here have also been eleven years old, but Sarah's birthdays are rather different from other little girls' birthdays. When she is older she will be heiress to a large fortune, which it will be her duty to spend in a meritorious manner. The Diamond Mines, giggled Jessie, in a whisper. Sarah did not hear her, but as she stood with her green-gray eyes fixed steadily on Miss Minchin, she felt herself growing rather hot. When Miss Minchin talked about money, she felt somehow that she always hated her, and, of course, it was disrespectful to hate grown-up people. When her dear papa, Captain Crewe, brought her from India and gave her into my care, the speech proceeded, he said to me, 
In a jesting way, I am afraid she will be very rich, Miss Minchin. My reply was, her education at my seminary, Captain Crewe, shall be such as will adorn the largest fortune. Sarah has become my most accomplished pupil. Her French and her dancing are a credit to the seminary. Her manners, which have caused you to call her Princess Sarah, are perfect. Her amiability she exhibits by giving you this afternoon's party. I hope you appreciate her generosity. I wish you to express your appreciation of it by saying aloud altogether, thank you, Sarah. The entire schoolroom rose to its feet as it had done the morning Sarah remembered so well. Thank you, Sarah, it said, and it must be confessed that Lottie jumped up and down. Sarah looked rather shy for a moment. She made a curtsy, and it was a very nice one. Thank you, she said, for coming to my party. Very pretty, indeed, Sarah, approved Miss Minchin. That is what a real princess does when the populace applauds her. Lavinia scathingly, the sound you just made was extremely like a snort. If you are jealous of your fellow pupil, I beg you will express your feelings in some more ladylike manner. Now I will leave you to enjoy yourselves. The instant she had swept out of the room the spell her presence always had upon them was broken. The door had scarcely closed before every seat was empty. The little girls jumped or tumbled out of theirs, the older ones wasted no time in deserting theirs. There was a rush toward the boxes. Sarah had bent over one of them with a delighted face. These are books, I know, she said. The little children broke into a rueful murmur, and Ermengarde looked aghast. Does your papa send you books for a birthday present? She exclaimed. Why, he's as bad as mine. Don't open them, Sarah. I like them, Sarah laughed, but she turned to the biggest box. When she took out the last doll it was so magnificent that the children uttered delighted groans of joy, and actually drew back to gaze at it in breathless rapture. She is almost as big as Lottie, someone gasped. Lottie clapped her hands and danced about, giggling. She's dressed for the theatre, said Lavinia. Her cloak is lined with ermine. Oh, cried Ermengarde, darting forward, she has an opera glass in her hand, a blue and gold one. Here is her trunk, said Sarah. Let us open it and look at her things. She sat down upon the floor and turned the key. The children crowded clamoring around her, as she lifted tray after tray and revealed their contents. Never had the schoolroom been in such an uproar. There were lace collars and silk stockings and handkerchiefs, there was a jewel case containing a necklace and a tiara which looked quite as if they were made of real diamonds, there was a long sealskin and muff, there were ball dresses and walking dresses and visiting dresses, there were hats and tea gowns and fans. Even Lavinia and Jessie forgot that they were too elderly to care for dolls, and uttered exclamations of delight and caught up things to look at them. Suppose, Sarah said, as she stood by the table, putting a large, black velvet hat on the impassively smiling owner of all these splendors, suppose she understands human talk and feels proud of being admired. You are always supposing things, said Lavinia and her air was very superior. I know I am, answered Sarah, undisturbedly. I like it. There is nothing so nice as supposing. It's almost like being a fairy. If you suppose anything hard enough it seems as if it were real. It's all very well to suppose things if you have everything, said Lavinia. Could you suppose and pretend if you were a beggar and lived in a garret? Sarah stopped arranging the last doll's ostrich plumes, and looked thoughtful. I believe I could, she said. If one was a beggar, one would have to suppose and pretend all the time. But it mightn't be easy. She often thought afterward how strange it was that just as she had finished saying this, just at that very moment, Miss Amelia came into the room. Sarah, she said, your papa's solicitor, Mr. Barrow, has called to see Miss Minchin, and, as she must talk to him alone and the refreshments are laid in her parlor, you had all better come and have your feast now, so that my sister can have her interview here in the schoolroom. Refreshments were not likely to be disdained at any hour, and many pairs of eyes gleamed. Miss Amelia arranged the procession into decorum, and then, with Sarah at her side heading it, she led it away, leaving the last doll sitting upon a chair with the glories of her wardrobe scattered about her. Dresses and coats hung upon chairbacks, piles of lace frilled petticoats lying upon their seats. Becky, who was not expected to partake of refreshments, had the indiscretion to linger a moment to look at these beauties, it really was an indiscretion. Go back to your work, Becky, Miss Amelia had said, but she had stopped to pick up reverently first a muff and then a coat, and while she stood looking at them adoringly, she heard Miss Minchin upon the threshold, and, being smitten with terror at the thought of being accused of taking liberties, she rashly darted under the table which hit her by its tablecloth. Miss Minchin came into the room, accompanied by a sharp-featured, dry little gentleman, who looked rather disturbed. Miss Minchin herself also looked rather disturbed, 
it must be admitted, and she gazed at the dry little gentleman with an irritated and puzzled expression. She sat down with stiff dignity, and waved him to a chair. Pray, be seated, Mr. Barrow, she said. Mr. Barrow did not sit down at once. His attention seemed attracted by the last doll and the things which surrounded her. He settled his eyeglasses and looked at them in nervous disapproval. The last doll herself did not seem to mind this in the least. She merely sat upright and returned his gaze indifferently. A hundred pounds, Mr. Barrow remarked succinctly. All expensive material, and made it a Parisian modiste's. He spent money lavishly enough, that young man. Miss Minchin felt offended. This seemed to be a disparagement of her best patron and was a liberty. Even solicitors had no right to take liberties. I beg your pardon Mr. Barrow, she said stiffly. I do not understand. Birthday presents, said Mr. Barrow in the same critical manner, to a child eleven years old. Mad extravagance, I call it. Miss Minchin drew herself up still more rigidly. Captain Crewe is a man of fortune, she said. The diamond mines alone. Mr. Barrow wheeled round upon her. Diamond mines. He broke out. There are none. Never were. Miss Minchin actually got up from her chair. What? she cried. What do you mean? At any rate, answered Mr. Barrow, quite snappishly, it would have been much better if there never had been any. Any diamond mines? ejaculated Miss Minchin, catching at the back of a chair and feeling as if a splendid dream was fading away from her. Diamond mines spell ruin oftener than they spell wealth, said Mr. Barrow. When a man is in the hands of a very dear friend and is not a businessman himself, he had better steer clear of the dear friend's diamond mines, or gold mines, or any other kind of mines dear friends want his money to put into. The late Captain Crew. Here Miss Minchin stopped him with a gasp. The late Captain Crew, she cried out. The late. You don't come to tell me that Captain Crew is. He's dead, ma'am, Mr. Barrow answered with jerky brusqueness. Died of jungle fever and business troubles combined. The jungle fever might not have killed him if he had not been driven mad by the business troubles, and the business troubles might not have put an end to him if the jungle fever had not assisted. Captain Crew is dead. Miss Minchin dropped into her chair again. The words he had spoken filled her with alarm. What were his business troubles? She said. What were they? Diamond mines, answered Mr. Barrow, and dear friends, and ruin. Miss Minchin lost her breath. Ruin, she gasped out. Lost every penny. That young man had too much money. The dear friend was mad on the subject of the diamond mine. He put all his own money into it, and all Captain Crew's. Then the dear friend ran away, Captain Crew was already stricken with fever when the news came. The shock was too much for him. He died delirious, raving about his little girl, and didn't leave a penny. Now Miss Minchin understood, and never had she received such a blow in her life. Her show pupil, her show patron, swept away from the select seminary at one blow. She felt as if she had been outraged and robbed, and that Captain Crew and Sarah and Mr. Barrow were equally to blame. Do you mean to tell me, she cried out, that he left nothing? That Sarah will have no fortune. That the child is a beggar. That she is left on my hands a little pauper instead of an heiress? Mr. Barrow was a shrewd businessman, and felt it as well to make his own freedom from responsibility quite clear without any delay. She is certainly left a beggar, he replied. And she is certainly left on your hands, ma'am, as she hasn't a relation in the world that we know of. Miss Minchin started forward. She looked as if she was going to open the door and rush out of the room to stop the festivities going on joyfully and rather noisily that moment over the refreshments. It is monstrous, she said. She's in my sitting room at this moment, dressed in silk gauze and lace petticoats, giving a party at my expense. She's giving it at your expense, madam, if she's giving it, said Mr. Barrow, calmly. Barrow and Skipworth are not responsible for anything. There never was a cleaner sweep made of a man's fortune. Captain Crew died without paying our last bill, and it was a big one. Miss Minchin turned back from the door in increased indignation. This was worse than anyone could have dreamed of its being. That is what has happened to me, she cried. I was always so sure of his payments that I went to all sorts of ridiculous expenses for the child. I paid the bills for that ridiculous doll and her ridiculous fantastic wardrobe. The child was to have anything she wanted. She has a carriage and a pony and a maid, and I've paid for all of them since the last check came. Mr. Barrow evidently did not intend to remain to listen to the story of Miss Minchin's grievances after he had made the position of his firm clear and related the mere dry facts. He did not feel any particular sympathy for irate keepers of boarding schools. You had better not pay for anything more, 
ma'am, he remarked, unless you want to make presents to the young lady. No one will remember you. She hasn't a brass farthing to call her own. But what am I to do? demanded Miss Minchin, as if she felt it entirely his duty to make the matter right. What am I to do? There isn't anything to do, said Mr. Barrow, folding up his eyeglasses and slipping them into his pocket. Captain Crewe is dead. The child has left a pauper. Nobody is responsible for her but you. I am not responsible for her and I refuse to be made responsible. Miss Minchin became quite white with rage. Mr. Barrow turned to go. I have nothing to do with that, madam, he said uninterestedly. Barrow and Skipworth are not responsible. Very sorry the thing has happened, of course. If you think she is to be foisted off on me, you are greatly mistaken, Miss Minchin gasped. I have been robbed and cheated, I will turn her into the street. If she had not been so furious, she would have been too discreet to say quite so much. She saw herself burdened with an extravagantly brought up child whom she had always resented, and she lost all self-control. Mr. Barrow undisturbedly moved toward the door. I wouldn't do that, madam, he commented, it wouldn't look well. Unpleasant story to get about in connection with the establishment. Pupil bundled out penniless and without friends. He was a clever businessman, and he knew what he was saying. He also knew that Miss Minchin was a businesswoman, and would be shrewd enough to see the truth. She could not afford to do a thing which would make people speak of her as cruel and hard-hearted. Better keep her and make use of her, he added. She's a clever child, I believe. You can get a good deal out of her as she grows older. I will get a good deal out of her before she grows older, exclaimed Miss Minchin. I am sure you will, ma'am, said Mr. Barrow, with a little sinister smile. I am sure you will. Good morning. He bowed himself out and closed the door, and it must be confessed that Miss Minchin stood for a few moments and glared at it. What he had said was quite true. She knew it. She had absolutely no redress. Her show pupil had melted into nothingness, leaving only a friendless, beggared little girl. Such money as she herself had advanced was lost and could not be regained. And as she stood there breathless under her sense of injury, there fell upon her ears a burst of gay voices from her own sacred room, which had actually been given up to the feast. She could at least stop this. But as she started toward the door it was opened by Miss Amelia, who, when she caught sight of the changed, angry face, fell back a step in alarm. What is the matter, sister? She ejaculated. Miss Minchin's voice was almost fierce when she answered. Where is Sarah Crewe? Miss Amelia was bewildered. Sarah, she stammered. Why, she's with the children in your room, of course. Has she a black frock in her sumptuous wardrobe? In bitter irony. A black frock? Miss Amelia stammered again. A black one? She has frocks of every other color. Has she a black one? Miss Amelia began to turn pale. No, yes, she said. But it is too short for her. She has only the old black velvet and she has outgrown it. Go and tell her to take off that preposterous pink silk gauze and put the black one on, whether it is too short or not. She has done with finery. Then Miss Amelia began to wring her fat hands and cry. Oh, sister. She sniffed. Oh, sister. What can have happened? Miss Minchin wasted no words. Captain Crewe is dead, she said. He has died without a penny. That spoiled, pampered, fanciful child has left a pauper on my hands. Miss Amelia sat down quite heavily in the nearest chair. Hundreds of pounds have I spent on nonsense for her. And I shall never see a penny of it put a stop to this ridiculous party of hers. Go and make her change her frock at once. I? panted Miss Amelia. And must I go and tell her now? This moment. Was the fierce answer. Don't sit staring like a goose. Go. Poor Miss Amelia was accustomed to being called a goose. She knew, in fact, that she was rather a goose, and that it was left to geese to do a great many disagreeable things. It was a somewhat embarrassing thing to go into the midst of a room full of delighted children, and tell the giver of the feast that she had suddenly been transformed into a little beggar, and must go upstairs and put on an old black frock which was too small for her. But the thing must be done. This was evidently not the time when questions might be asked. She rubbed her eyes with her handkerchief until they looked quite red. After which she got up and went out of the room, without venturing to say another word. When her older sister looked and spoke as she had done just now, the wisest course to pursue was to obey orders without any comment. Miss Minchin walked across the room. She spoke to herself aloud without knowing that she was doing it. During the last year the story of the diamond mines had suggested all sorts of possibilities to her. 
even proprietors of seminaries might make fortunes in stocks, with the aid of owners of mines. And now, instead of looking forward to gains, she was left to look back upon losses. The Princess Sarah, indeed, she said. The child has been pampered as if she were a queen. She was sweeping angrily past the corner table as she said it, and the next moment she started at the sound of a loud, sobbing sniff which issued from under the cover. What is that? she exclaimed angrily. The loud, sobbing sniff was heard again, and she stooped and raised the hanging folds of the table cover. How dare you? she cried out. How dare you? Come out immediately. It was poor Becky who crawled out, and her cap was knocked on one side, and her face was red with repressed crying. If you please, am, it's me, mum, she explained. I know I hadn't ought to. But I was looking at the doll, mum, and I was frightened when you come in, and slipped under the table. You have been there all the time, listening, said Miss Minchin. No, mum, Becky protested, bobbing curtsies. Not listening, I thought I could slip out without your noticing, but I couldn't and I had to stay. But I didn't listen, mum, I wouldn't for nothing. But I couldn't help hearing. Suddenly it seemed almost as if she lost all fear of the awful lady before her. She burst into fresh tears. Oh, please, M, she said, I dare say you'll give me warning, mum, but I'm so sorry for poor Miss Sarah, I'm so sorry. Leave the room. Ordered Miss Minchin. Becky curtsied again, the tears openly streaming down her cheeks. Yes, M, I will, M, she said, trembling, but oh, I just wanted to arst you, Miss Sarah, she's been such a rich young lady, and she's been waited on, and in foot, and what will she do now, mum, without no maid? If, if, oh please, would you let me wait on her after I've done my pots and kettles? I'd do em that quick, if you'd let me wait on her now she's poor. Oh, breaking out afresh, poor little Miss Sarah, mum, that was called a princess. Somehow, she made Miss Minchin feel more angry than ever. That the very scullery maid should range herself on the side of this child, whom she realized more fully than ever that she had never liked, was too much. She actually stamped her foot. No, certainly not, she said. She will wait on herself, and on other people, too. Leave the room this instant, or you'll leave your place. Becky threw her apron over her head and fled. She ran out of the room and down the steps into the scullery, and there she sat down among her pots and kettles, and wept as if her heart would break. It's exactly like the ones in the stories, she wailed. Them poor princess ones that was drove into the world. Miss Minchin had never looked quite so still and hard as she did when Sarah came to her, a few hours later, in response to a message she had sent her. Even by that time it seemed to Sarah as if the birthday party had either been a dream or a thing which had happened years ago, and had happened in the life of quite another little girl. Every sign of the festivities had been swept away, the holly had been removed from the schoolroom walls, and the forms and desks put back into their places. Miss Minchin's sitting room looked as it always did, all traces of the feast were gone, and Miss Minchin had resumed her usual dress. The pupils had been ordered to lay aside their party frocks, and this having been done, they had returned to the schoolroom and huddled together in groups, whispering and talking excitedly. Tell Sarah to come to my room, Miss Minchin had said to her sister. And explain to her clearly that I will have no crying or unpleasant scenes. Sister, replied Miss Amelia, she is the strangest child I ever saw. She has actually made no fuss at all. You remember she made none when Captain Crewe went back to India. When I told her what had happened, she just stood quite still and looked at me without making a sound. Her eyes seemed to get bigger and bigger, and she went quite pale. When I had finished, she still stood staring for a few seconds, and then her chin began to shake, and she turned round and ran out of the room and upstairs. Several of the other children began to cry, but she did not seem to hear them or to be alive to anything but just what I was saying. It made me feel quite queer not to be answered, and when you tell anything sudden and strange, you expect people will say something, whatever it is. Nobody but Sarah herself ever knew what had happened in her room after she had run upstairs and locked her door. In fact, she herself scarcely remembered anything but that she walked up and down, saying over and over again to herself in a voice which did not seem her own, My papa is dead. My papa is dead. Once she stopped before Emily, who sat watching her from her chair, and cried out wildly, Emily. Do you hear? Do you hear, papa is dead? He is dead in India, thousands of miles away. When she came into Miss Minchin's sitting room in answer to her summons, her face was white and her eyes had dark rings around them. Her mouth was set as if she did not wish it to reveal what she had suffered and was suffering. She did not look in the least like the rose-colored butterfly child who had flown about from one of her treasures to the other in the decorated schoolroom. 
she looked instead a strange, desolate, almost grotesque little figure. She had put on, without Mariette's help, the cast-aside black velvet frock. It was too short and tight, and her slender legs looked long and thin, showing themselves from beneath the brief skirt. As she had not found a piece of black ribbon, her short, thick, black hair tumbled loosely about her face and contrasted strongly with its pallor. She held Emily tightly in one arm, and Emily was swathed in a piece of black material. Put down your doll, said Miss Minchin. What do you mean by bringing her here? No, Sarah answered. I will not put her down. She is all I have. My papa gave her to me. She had always made Miss Minchin feel secretly uncomfortable, and she did so now. She did not speak with rudeness so much as with a cold steadiness with which Miss Minchin felt it difficult to cope, perhaps because she knew she was doing a heartless and inhuman thing. You will have no time for dolls in future, she said. You will have to work and improve yourself and make yourself useful. Sarah kept her big, strange eyes fixed on her, and said not a word. Everything will be very different now, Miss Minchin went on. I suppose Miss Amelia has explained matters to you. Yes, answered Sarah. My papa is dead. He left me no money. I am quite poor. You are a beggar, said Miss Minchin, her temper rising at the recollection of what all this meant. It appears that you have no relations and no home, and no one to take care of you. For a moment the thin, pale little face twitched, but Sarah again said nothing. What are you staring at? demanded Miss Minchin, sharply. Are you so stupid that you cannot understand? I tell you that you are quite alone in the world, and have no one to do anything for you, unless I choose to keep you here out of charity. I understand, answered Sarah, in a low tone, and there was a sound as if she had gulped down something which rose in her throat. I understand. That doll, cried Miss Minchin, pointing to the splendid birthday gift seated near, that ridiculous doll, with all her nonsensical, extravagant things, I actually paid the bill for her. Sarah turned her head toward the chair. The last doll, she said. The last doll. And her little mournful voice had an odd sound. The last doll, indeed, said Miss Minchin. And she is mine, not yours. Everything you own is mine. Please take it away from me, then, said Sarah. I do not want it. If she had cried and sobbed and seemed frightened, Miss Minchin might almost have had more patience with her. She was a woman who liked to domineer and feel her power, and as she looked at Sarah's pale little steadfast face and heard her proud little voice, she quite felt as if her might was being set at naught. Don't put on grand airs, she said. The time for that sort of thing is past. You are not a princess any longer. Your carriage and your pony will be sent away, your maid will be dismissed. You will wear your oldest and plainest clothes, your extravagant ones are no longer suited to your station. You are like Becky, you must work for your living. To her surprise, a faint gleam of light came into the child's eyes, a shade of relief. Can I work? She said. If I can work it will not matter so much. What can I do? You can do anything you are told, was the answer. You are a sharp child, and pick up things readily. If you make yourself useful I may let you stay here. You speak French well, and you can help with the younger children. May I? exclaimed Sarah. Oh, please let me. I know I can teach them. I like them, and they like me. Don't talk nonsense about people liking you, said Miss Minchin. You will have to do more than teach the little ones. You will run errands and help in the kitchen as well as in the schoolroom. If you don't please me, you will be sent away. Remember that. Now go. Sarah stood still just a moment, looking at her. In her young soul, she was thinking deep and strange things. Then she turned to leave the room. Stop, said Miss Minchin. Don't you intend to thank me? Sarah paused, and all the deep, strange thoughts surged up in her breast. What for? She said. For my kindness to you, replied Miss Minchin. For my kindness in giving you a home. Sarah made two or three steps toward her. Her thin little chest heaved up and down, and she spoke in a strange unchildishly fierce way. You are not kind, she said. You are not kind, and it is not a home. And she had turned and run out of the room before Miss Minchin could stop her or do anything but stare after her with stony anger. She went up the stairs slowly, but panting for breath and she held Emily tightly against her side. I wish she could talk, she said to herself. If she could speak, if she could speak. She meant to go to her room and lie down on the tiger skin, with her cheek upon the great cat's head, and look into the fire and think and think and think. But just before she reached the landing Miss Amelia came out of the door and closed it behind her, and stood before it, looking nervous and awkward. The truth was that she felt secretly ashamed of the thing she had been ordered to do. 
You, you are not to go in there, she said. Not go in? exclaimed Sarah, and she fell back a pace. That is not your room now, Miss Amelia answered, reddening a little. Somehow, all at once, Sarah understood. She realized that this was the beginning of the change Miss Minchin had spoken of. Where is my room? she asked, hoping very much that her voice did not shake. You are to sleep in the attic next to Becky. Sarah knew where it was. Becky had told her about it. She turned, and mounted up two flights of stairs. The last one was narrow, and covered with shabby strips of old carpet. She felt as if she were walking away and leaving far behind her the world in which that other child, who no longer seemed herself, had lived. This child, in her short, tight old frock, climbing the stairs to the attic, was quite a different creature. When she reached the attic door and opened it, her heart gave a dreary little thump. Then she shut the door and stood against it and looked about her. Yes, this was another world. The room had a slanting roof and was whitewashed. The whitewash was dingy and had fallen off in places. There was a rusty grate, an old iron bedstead, and a hard bed covered with a faded coverlet. Some pieces of furniture too much worn to be used downstairs had been sent up. Under the skylight in the roof, which showed nothing but an oblong piece of dull grey sky, there stood an old battered red footstool. Sarah went to it and sat down. She seldom cried. She did not cry now. She laid Emily across her knees and put her face down upon her and her arms around her, and sat there, her little black head resting on the black draperies, not saying one word, not making one sound. And as she sat in this silence there came a low tap at the door, such a low, humble one that she did not at first hear it, and, indeed, was not roused until the door was timidly pushed open and a poor tear-smeared face appeared peeping round it. It was Becky's face, and Becky had been crying furtively for hours and rubbing her eyes with her kitchen apron until she looked strange indeed. Oh, miss, she said under her breath. Might I, would you allow me, just to come in? Sarah lifted her head and looked at her. She tried to begin a smile, and somehow she could not. Suddenly, and it was all through the loving mournfulness of Becky's streaming eyes, her face looked more like a child's not so much too old for her years. She held out her hand and gave a little sob. Oh, Becky, she said. I told you we were just the same, only two little girls, just two little girls. You see how true it is. There's no difference now. I'm not a princess anymore. Becky ran to her and caught her hand, and hugged it to her breast, kneeling beside her and sobbing with love and pain. Yes, miss, you are, she cried, and her words were all broken. Whatsoever happens to you, whatsoever, you'd be a princess all the same, and nothing couldn't make you nothing different. 8. In the attic. The first night she spent in her attic was a thing Sarah never forgot. During its passing she lived through a wild, unchildlike woe of which she never spoke to anyone about her. There was no one who would have understood. It was, indeed, well for her that as she lay awake in the darkness her mind was forcibly distracted, now and then, by the strangeness of her surroundings. It was, perhaps, well for her that she was reminded by her small body of material things. If this had not been so, the anguish of her young mind might have been too great for a child to bear. But, really, while the night was passing she scarcely knew that she had a body at all or remembered any other thing than one. My papa is dead. She kept whispering to herself. My papa is dead. It was not until long afterward that she realized that her bed had been so hard that she turned over it and over in it to find a place to rest, that the darkness seemed more intense than any she had ever known, and that the wind howled over the roof among the chimneys like something which wailed aloud. Then there was something worse. This was certain scufflings and scratchings and squeakings in the walls and behind the skirting boards. She knew what they meant, because Becky had described them. They meant rats and mice who were either fighting with each other or playing together. Once or twice she even heard sharp-toed feet scurrying across the floor, and she remembered in those after days, when she recalled things, that when first she heard them she started up in bed and sat trembling, and when she lay down again covered her head with the bedclothes. The change in her life did not come about gradually, but was made all at once. She must begin as she is to go on, as Minchin said to Miss Amelia. She must be taught at once what she is to expect. Mariette had left the house the next morning. The glimpse Sarah caught of her sitting room, as she passed its open door, showed her that everything had been changed. Her ornaments and luxuries had been removed, and a bed had been placed in a corner to transform it into a new pupil's bedroom. When she went down to breakfast she saw that her seat at Miss Minchin's side was occupied by Lavinia, and Miss Minchin spoke to her coldly. You will begin your new duties, Sarah, she said, by taking your seat with the younger children at a smaller table. You must keep them quiet, and see that they behave well and do not waste their food. 
You ought to have been down earlier. Lottie has already upset her tea. That was the beginning, and from day to day the duties given to her were added too. She taught the younger children French and heard their other lessons, and these were the least of her labors. It was found that she could be made use of in numberless directions. She could be sent on errands at any time and, and in all weathers. She could be told to do things other people neglected. The cook and the housemaids took their tone from Miss Minchin, and rather enjoyed ordering about the young one who had been made so much fuss over for so long. They were not servants of the best class, and had neither good manners nor good tempers, and it was frequently convenient to have at hand someone on whom blame could be laid. During the first month or two, Sarah thought that her willingness to do things as well as she could, and her silence under reproof, might soften those who drove her so hard. In her proud little heart she wanted them to see that she was trying to earn her living and not accepting charity. But the time came when she saw that no one was softened at all, and the more willing she was to do as she was told, the more domineering and exacting careless housemaids became, and the more ready a scolding cook was to blame her. If she had been older, Miss Minchin would have given her the bigger girls to teach and saved money by dismissing an instructress, but while she remained and looked like a child, she could be made more useful as a sort of little superior errand girl and maid of all work. An ordinary errand boy would not have been so clever and reliable. Sarah could be trusted with difficult commissions and complicated messages. She could even go and pay bills, and she combined with this the ability to dust a room well and to set things in order. Her own lessons became things of the past. She was taught nothing, and only after long and busy days spent in running here and there at everybody's orders was she grudgingly allowed to go into the deserted schoolroom, with a pile of old books, and study alone at night. If I do not remind myself of the things I have learned, perhaps I may forget them, she said to herself. I am almost a scullery maid, and if I am a scullery maid who knows nothing, I shall be like poor Becky. I wonder if I could quite forget and begin to drop my H's and not remember that Henry VIII had six wives. One of the most curious things in her new existence was her changed position among the pupils. Instead of being a sort of small royal personage among them, she no longer seemed to be one of their number at all. She was kept so constantly at work that she scarcely ever had an opportunity of speaking to any of them, and she could not avoid seeing that Miss Minchin preferred that she should live a life apart from that of the occupants of the schoolroom. I will not have her forming intimacies and talking to the other children, that lady said. Girls like a grievance, and if she begins to tell romantic stories about herself, she will become an ill-used heroine, and parents will be given a wrong impression. It is better that she should live a separate life, one suited to her circumstances. I am giving her a home, and that is more than she has any right to expect from me. Sarah did not expect much, and was far too proud to try to continue to be intimate with girls who evidently felt rather awkward and uncertain about her. The fact was that Miss Minchin's pupils were a set of dull, matter-of-fact young people. They were accustomed to being rich and comfortable, and as Sarah's frocks grew shorter and shabbier and queerer looking, and it became an established fact that she wore shoes with holes in them and was sent out to buy groceries and carry them through the streets in a basket on her arm when the cook wanted them in a hurry, they felt rather as if, when they spoke to her, they were addressing an underservant. To think that she was the girl with the diamond mines, Lavinia commented. She does look an object. And she's queerer than ever. I never liked her much, but I can't bear that way she is now of looking at people without speaking, just as if she was finding them out. I am, said Sarah, promptly, when she heard of this. That's what I look at some people for. I like to know about them. I think them over afterward. The truth was that she had saved herself annoyance several times by keeping her eye on Lavinia, who was quite ready to make mischief, and would have been rather pleased to have made it for the ex-show pupil. Sarah never made any mischief herself, or interfered with anyone. She worked like a drudge, she tramped through the wet streets, carrying parcels and baskets, she labored with the childish inattention of the little one's French lessons, as she became shabbier and more forlorn-looking, she was told that she had better take her meals downstairs, she was treated as if she was nobody's concern, and her heart grew proud and sore, but she never told anyone what she felt. Soldiers don't complain, she would say between her small, shut teeth, I am not going to do it, I will pretend this is part of a war but there were hours when her child heart might almost have broken with loneliness but for three people. The first, it must be owned, was Becky, just Becky. Throughout all that first night spent in the garret, she had felt a vague comfort in knowing that on the other side of the wall in which the rats scuffled and squeaked there was another young human creature. And during the nights that followed the sense of comfort grew. They had little chance to speak to each other during the day. Each had her own task to perform, and any attempt at conversation would have been regarded as a tendency to loiter and lose time. Don't mind me, miss, Becky whispered during the first morning, if I don't say nothing polite. 
Someone be down on us if I did. I means please and thank you and beg pardon, but I dasn't to take time to say it. But before daybreak she used to slip into Sarah's attic and button her dress and give her such help as she required before she went downstairs to light the kitchen fire. And when night came Sarah always heard the humble knock at her door which meant that her handmaid was ready to help her again if she was needed. During the first weeks of her grief Sarah felt as if she were too stupefied to talk, so it happened that some time passed before they saw each other much or exchanged visits. Becky's heart told her that it was best that people in trouble should be left alone. The second of the trio of comforters was Ermengarde, but odd things happened before Ermengarde found her place. When Sarah's mind seemed to awaken again to the life about her, she realized that she had forgotten that an Ermengarde lived in the world. The two had always been friends, but Sarah had felt as if she were years the older. It could not be contested that Ermengarde was as dull as she was affectionate. She clung to Sarah in a simple, helpless way, she brought her lessons to her that she might be helped, she listened to her every word and besieged her with requests for stories. But she had nothing interesting to say herself, and she loathed books of every description. She was, in fact, not a person one would remember when one was caught in the storm of a great trouble, and Sarah forgot her. It had been all the easier to forget her because she had been suddenly called home for a few weeks. When she came back she did not see Sarah for a day or two, and when she met her for the first time she encountered her coming down a corridor with her arms full of garments which were to be taken downstairs to be mended. Sarah herself had already been taught to mend them. She looked pale and unlike herself, and she was attired in the queer, outgrown frock whose shortness showed so much thin black leg. Ermengarde was too slow a girl to be equal to such a situation. She could not think of anything to say. She knew what had happened, but, somehow, she had never imagined Sarah could look like this, so odd and poor and almost like a servant. It made her quite miserable, and she could do nothing but break into a short hysterical laugh and exclaim, aimlessly and as if without any meaning, Oh, Sarah, is that you? Yes, answered Sarah, and suddenly a strange thought passed through her mind and made her face flush. She held the pile of garments in her arms, and her chin rested upon the top of it to keep it steady. Something in the look of her straight-gazing eyes made Ermengarde lose her wits still more. She felt as if Sarah had changed into a new kind of girl, and she had never known her before. Perhaps it was because she had suddenly grown poor and had to mend things and work like Becky. Oh, she stammered. How, how are you? I don't know, Sarah replied. How are you? I'm, I'm quite well, said Ermengarde, overwhelmed with shyness. Then spasmodically she thought of something to say which seemed more intimate. Are you, are you very unhappy? She said in a rush. Then Sarah was guilty of an injustice. Just at that moment her torn heart swelled within her, and she felt that if anyone was as stupid as that, one had better get away from her. What do you think? She said. Do you think I am very happy? And she marched past her without another word. In course of time she realized that if her wretchedness had not made her forget things, she would have known that poor, dull Ermengarde was not to be blamed for her unready, awkward ways. She was always awkward, and the more she felt, the more stupid she was given to being but the sudden thought which had flashed upon her had made her oversensitive. She is like the others, she had thought. She does not really want to talk to me. She knows no one does. So for several weeks a barrier stood between them. When they met by chance Sarah looked the other way and Ermengarde felt too stiff and embarrassed to speak. Sometimes they nodded to each other in passing, but there were times when they did not even exchange a greeting. If she would rather not talk to me, Sarah thought, I will keep out of her way. Miss Minchin makes that easy enough. Miss Minchin made it so easy that at last they scarcely saw each other at all. At that time it was noticed that Ermengarde was more stupid than ever, and that she looked listless and unhappy. She used to sit in the window seat, huddled in a heap, and stare out of the window without speaking. Once Jessie, who was passing, stopped to look at her curiously. What are you crying for, Ermengarde? She asked. I'm not crying, answered Ermengarde, in a muffled, unsteady voice. You are, said Jessie. A great big tear just rolled down the bridge of your nose and dropped off at the end of it. And there goes another. Well, said Ermengarde, I'm miserable, and no one need interfere. And she turned her plump back and took out her handkerchief and boldly hid her face in it. That night, when Sarah went to her attic, she was later than usual. She had been kept at work until after the hour at which the pupils went to bed, and after that she had gone to her lessons in the lonely schoolroom. When she reached the top of the stairs, she was surprised to see a glimmer of light coming from under the attic door. Nobody goes there but myself, she thought quickly, but someone has lighted a candle. Someone had, indeed, lighted a candle, 
and it was not burning in the kitchen candlestick she was expected to use, but in one of those belonging to the pupils' bedrooms. The someone was sitting upon the battered footstool, and was dressed in her nightgown and wrapped up in a red shawl. It was Ermengarde. Ermengarde, cried Sarah. She was so startled that she was almost frightened. You will get into trouble. Ermengarde stumbled up from her footstool. She shuffled across the attic in her bedroom slippers, which were too large for her. Her eyes and nose were pink with crying. I know I shall, if I'm found out, she said. But I don't care, I don't care a bit. Oh, Sarah, please tell me. What is the matter? Why don't you like me any more? Something in her voice made the familiar lump rise in Sarah's throat. It was so affectionate and simple, so like the old Ermengarde who had asked her to be best friends. It sounded as if she had not meant what she had seemed to mean during these past weeks. I do like you, Sarah answered. I thought, you see, everything is different now. I thought you, were different. Ermengarde opened her wet eyes wide. Why, it was you who were different, she cried. You didn't want to talk to me. I didn't know what to do. It was you who were different after I came back. Sarah thought a moment. She saw she had made a mistake. I am different, she explained, though not in the way you think. Miss Minchin does not want me to talk to the girls. Most of them don't want to talk to me. I thought, perhaps, you didn't. So I tried to keep out of your way. Oh, Sarah, Ermengarde almost wailed in her reproachful dismay. And then after one more look they rushed into each other's arms. It must be confessed that Sarah's small black head lay for some minutes on the shoulder covered by the red shawl. When Ermengarde had seemed to desert her, she had felt horribly lonely. Afterward they sat down upon the floor together, Sarah clasping her knees with her arms, and Ermengarde rolled up in her shawl. Ermengarde looked at the odd, big-eyed little face adoringly. I couldn't bear it any more, she said. I dare say you could live without me, Sarah, but I couldn't live without you. I was nearly dead. So tonight, when I was crying under the bedclothes, I thought all at once of creeping up here and just begging you to let us be friends again. You are nicer than I am, said Sarah. I was too proud to try and make friends. You see, now that trials have come, they have shown that I am not a nice child. I was afraid they would. Perhaps wrinkling her forehead wisely, that is what they were sent for. I don't see any good in them, said Ermengarde stoutly. Neither do I, to speak the truth, admitted Sarah, frankly. But I suppose there might be good in things, even if we don't see it. There might doubtfully, be good in Miss Minchin. Ermengarde looked round the attic with a rather fearsome curiosity. Sarah, she said, do you think you can bear living here? Sarah looked round also. If I pretend it's quite different, I can, she answered, or if I pretend it is a place in a story. She spoke slowly. Her imagination was beginning to work for her. It had not worked for her at all since her troubles had come upon her. She had felt as if it had been stunned. Other people have lived in worse places. Think of the Count of Monte Cristo in the dungeons of the Chateau d'If. And think of the people in the Bastille. The Bastille, half-whispered Ermengarde, watching her and beginning to be fascinated. She remembered stories of the French Revolution which Sarah had been able to fix in her mind by her dramatic relation of them. No one but Sarah could have done it. A well-known glow came into Sarah's eyes. Yes, she said, hugging her knees, that will be a good place to pretend about. I am a prisoner in the Bastille. I have been here for years and years, and years, and everybody has forgotten about me. Miss Minchin is the jailer, and Becky a sudden light adding itself to the glow in her eyes, Becky is the prisoner in the next cell. She turned to Ermengarde, looking quite like the old Sarah. I shall pretend that, she said, and it will be a great comfort. Ermengarde was at once enraptured and awed. And will you tell me all about it? She said. May I creep up here at night, whenever it is safe, and hear the things you have made up in the day? It will seem as if we were more best friends than ever. Yes, answered Sarah, nodding. Adversity tries people, and mine has tried you and proved how nice you are. 9. Melchizedek. The third person in the trio was Lottie. She was a small thing and did not know what adversity meant, and was much bewildered by the alteration she saw in her young adopted mother. She had heard it rumored that strange things had happened to Sarah, but she could not understand why she looked different, why she wore an old black frock and came into the schoolroom only to teach instead of to sit in her place of honor and learn lessons herself. There had been much whispering among the little ones when it had been discovered that Sarah no longer lived in the rooms in which Emily had so long sat in state. Lottie's chief difficulty was that Sarah said so little when one asked her questions. At seven mysteries must be made very clear if one is to understand them. Are you very poor now, Sarah? 
she had asked confidentially the first morning her friend took charge of the small French class. Are you as poor as a beggar? She thrust a fat hand into the slim one and opened round, tearful eyes. I don't want you to be as poor as a beggar. She looked as if she was going to cry. And Sarah hurriedly consoled her. Beggars have nowhere to live, she said courageously. I have a place to live in. Where do you live? persisted Lottie. The new girl sleeps in your room, and it isn't pretty anymore. I live in another room, said Sarah. Is it a nice one? inquired Lottie. I want to go and see it. You must not talk, said Sarah. Miss Minchin is looking at us. She will be angry with me for letting you whisper. She had found out already that she was to be held accountable for everything which was objected to. If the children were not attentive, if they talked, if they were restless, it was she who would be reproved. But Lottie was a determined little person. If Sarah would not tell her where she lived, she would find out in some other way. She talked to her small companions and hung about the elder girls and listened when they were gossiping, and acting upon certain information they had unconsciously let drop, she started late one afternoon on a voyage of discovery, climbing stairs she had never known the existence of, until she reached the attic floor. There she found two doors near each other, and opening one, she saw her beloved Sarah standing upon an old table and looking out of a window. Sarah, she cried, aghast. Mama Sarah. She was aghast because the attic was so bare and ugly and seemed so far away from all the world. Her short legs had seemed to have been mounting hundreds of stairs. Sarah turned round at the sound of her voice. It was her turn to be aghast. What would happen now? If Lottie began to cry and any one chance to hear, they were both lost. She jumped down from her table and ran to the child. Don't cry and make a noise, she implored. I shall be scolded if you do, and I have been scolded all day. It's, it's not such a bad room, Lottie. Isn't it? gasped Lottie, and as she looked round it she bit her lip. She was a spoiled child yet, but she was fond enough of her adopted parent to make an effort to control herself for her sake. Then, somehow, it was quite possible that any place in which Sarah lived might turn out to be nice. Why isn't it, Sarah? She almost whispered. Sarah hugged her close and tried to laugh. There was a sort of comfort in the warmth of the plump, childish body. She had had a hard day and had been staring out of the windows with hot eyes. You can see all sorts of things you can't see downstairs, she said. What sort of things? demanded Lottie, with that curiosity Sarah could always awaken even in bigger girls. Chimneys, quite close to us, with smoke curling up in wreaths and clouds and going up into the sky, and sparrows hopping about and talking to each other just as if they were people, and other attic windows where heads may pop out any minute and you can wonder who they belong to. And it all feels as high up, as if it was another world. Oh, let me see it, cried Lottie. Lift me up. Sarah lifted her up, and they stood on the old table together and leaned on the edge of the flat window in the roof, and looked out. Anyone who has not done this does not know what a different world they saw. The slates spread out on either side of them and slanted down into the rain gutter pipes. The sparrows, being at home there, twittered and hopped about quite without fear. Two of them perched on the chimney top nearest and quarreled with each other fiercely until one pecked the other and drove him away. The garret window next to theirs was shut because the house next door was empty. I wish someone lived there, Sarah said. It is so close that if there was a little girl in the attic, we could talk to each other through the windows and climb over to see each other, if we were not afraid of falling. The sky seemed so much nearer than when one saw it from the street, that Lottie was enchanted. From the attic window, among the chimney pots, the things which were happening in the world below seemed almost unreal. One scarcely believed in the existence of Miss Minchin and Miss Amelia and the schoolroom, and the roll of wheels in the square seemed a sound belonging to another existence. Oh, Sarah, cried Lottie, cuddling in her guarding arm. I like this attic. I like it. It is nicer than downstairs. Look at that sparrow, whispered Sarah. I wish I had some crumbs to throw to him. I have some. Came in a little shriek from Lottie. I have part of a bun in my pocket, I bought it with my penny yesterday, and I saved a bit. When they threw out a few crumbs the sparrow jumped and flew away to an adjacent chimney top. He was evidently not accustomed to intimates in attics, and unexpected crumbs startled him. But when Lottie remained quite still and Sarah chirped very softly, almost as if she were a sparrow herself, he saw that the thing which had alarmed him represented hospitality, after all. He put his head on one side, and from his perch on the chimney looked down at the crumbs with twinkling eyes. Lottie could scarcely keep still. Will he come? Will he come? She whispered. His eyes look as if he would, Sarah whispered back. He is thinking and thinking whether he dare. Yes, he will. Yes, he is coming.
He flew down and hopped toward the crumbs, but stopped a few inches away from them, putting his head on one side again, as if reflecting on the chances that Sarah and Lottie might turn out to be big cats and jump on him. At last his heart told him they were really nicer than they looked, and he hopped nearer and nearer, darted at the biggest crumb with a lightning peck, seized it and carried it away to the other side of his chimney. Now he knows, said Sarah. And he will come back for the others. He did come back, and even brought a friend, and the friend went away and brought a relative, and among them they made a hearty meal over which they twittered and chattered and exclaimed, stopping every now and then to put their heads on one side and examine Lottie and Sarah. Lottie was so delighted that she quite forgot her first shocked impression of the attic. In fact, when she was lifted down from the table and returned to earthly things, as it were, Sarah was able to point out to her many beauties in the room which she herself would not have suspected the existence of. It is so little and so high above everything, she said, that it is almost like a nest in a tree. The slanting ceiling is so funny. See, you can scarcely stand up at this end of the room, and when the morning begins to come I can lie in bed and look right up into the sky through that flat window in the roof. It is like a square patch of light. If the sun is going to shine, little pink clouds float about, and I feel as if I could touch them. And if it rains, the drops patter and patter as if they were saying something nice. Then if there are stars, you can lie and try to count how many go into the patch. It takes such a lot. And just look at that tiny, rusty grate in the corner. If it was polished and there was a fire in it, just think how nice it would be. You see, it's really a beautiful little room. She was walking round the small place, holding Lottie's hand and making gestures which described all the beauty she was making herself see. She quite made Lottie see them, too. Lottie could always believe in the things Sarah made pictures of. You see, she said, there could be a thick, soft blue Indian rug on the floor, and in that corner there could be a soft little sofa, with cushions to curl up on, and just over it could be a shelf full of books so that one could reach them easily, and there could be a fur rug before the fire, and hangings on the wall to cover up the whitewash, and pictures. They would have to be little ones, but they could be beautiful, and there could be a lamp with a deep rose-colored shade, and a table in the middle, with things to have tea with, and a little fat copper kettle singing on the hob, and the bed could be quite different. It could be made soft and covered with a lovely silk coverlet. It could be beautiful. And perhaps we could coax the sparrows until we made such friends with them that they would come and peck at the window and ask to be let in. Oh, Sarah, cried Lottie. I should like to live here. When Sarah had persuaded her to go downstairs again, and, after setting her on her way, had come back to her attic, she stood in the middle of it and looked about her. The enchantment of her imaginings for Lottie had died away. The bed was hard and covered with its dingy quilt. The whitewashed wall showed its broken patches, the floor was cold and bare, the grate was broken and rusty, and the battered footstool, tilted sideways on its injured leg, the only seat in the room. She sat down on it for a few minutes and let her head drop in her hands. The mere fact that Lottie had come and gone away again made things seem a little worse, just as perhaps prisoners feel a little more desolate after visitors come and go, leaving them behind. It's a lonely place, she said. Sometimes it's the loneliest place in the world. She was sitting in this way when her attention was attracted by a slight sound near her. She lifted her head to see where it came from, and if she had been a nervous child she would have left her seat on the battered footstool in a great hurry. A large rat was sitting up on his hindquarters and sniffing the air in an interested manner. Some of Lottie's crumbs had dropped upon the floor and their scent had drawn him out of his hole. He looked so queer and so like a grey whiskered dwarf or gnome that Sarah was rather fascinated. He looked at her with his bright eyes, as if he were asking a question. He was evidently so doubtful that one of the child's queer thoughts came into her mind. I dare say it is rather hard to be a rat, she mused. Nobody likes you. People jump and run away and scream out, oh, a horrid rat. I shouldn't like people to scream and jump and say, oh, a horrid Sarah. The moment they saw me. And set traps for me, and pretend they were dinner. It's so different to be a sparrow. But nobody asked this rat if he wanted to be a rat when he was made. Nobody said, wouldn't you rather be a sparrow? She had sat so quietly that the rat had begun to take courage. He was very much afraid of her, but perhaps he had a heart like the sparrow and it told him that she was not a thing which pounced. He was very hungry. He had a wife and a large family in the wall, and they had had frightfully bad luck for several days. He had left the children crying bitterly, and felt he would risk a good deal for a few crumbs, so he cautiously dropped upon his feet. Come on, said Sarah, I'm not a trap. You can have them, poor thing. Prisoners in the Bastille used to make friends with rats. Suppose I make friends with you. How it is that animals understand things I do not know, but it is certain that they do understand. 
Perhaps there is a language which is not made of words and everything in the world understands it. Perhaps there is a soul hidden in everything and it can always speak, without even making a sound, to another soul. But whatsoever was the reason, the rat knew from that moment that he was safe, even though he was a rat. He knew that this young human being sitting on the red footstool would not jump up and terrify him with wild, sharp noises or throw heavy objects at him which, if they did not fall and crush him, would send him limping in his scurry back to his hole. He was really a very nice rat, and did not mean the least harm. When he had stood on his hind legs and sniffed the air, with his bright eyes fixed on Sarah, he had hoped that she would understand this, and would not begin by hating him as an enemy. When the mysterious thing which speaks without saying any words told him that she would not, he went softly toward the crumbs and began to eat them. As he did it he glanced every now and then at Sarah, just as the sparrows had done, and his expression was so very apologetic that it touched her heart. She sat and watched him without making any movement. One crumb was very much larger than the others, in fact, it could scarcely be called a crumb. It was evident that he wanted that piece very much, but it lay quite near the footstool and he was still rather timid. I believe he wants it to carry to his family in the wall, Sarah thought. If I do not stir at all, perhaps he will come and get it. She scarcely allowed herself to breathe, she was so deeply interested. The rat shuffled a little nearer and ate a few more crumbs, then he stopped and sniffed delicately, giving a side glance at the occupant of the footstool. Then he darted at the piece of bun with something very like the sudden boldness of the sparrow, and the instant he had possession of it fled back to the wall, slipped down a crack in the skirting board, and was gone. I knew he wanted it for his children, said Sarah. I do believe I could make friends with him. A week or so afterward, on one of the rare nights when Ermengarde found it safe to steal up to the attic, when she tapped on the door with the tips of her fingers Sarah did not come to her for two or three minutes. There was, indeed, such a silence in the room at first that Ermengarde wondered if she could have fallen asleep. Then, to her surprise, she heard her utter a little low laugh and speak coaxingly to someone. There! Ermengarde heard her say. Take it and go home, Melchizedek. Go home to your wife. Almost immediately Sarah opened the door, and when she did so she found Ermengarde standing with alarmed eyes upon the threshold. Who, who are you talking to, Sarah? She gasped out. Sarah drew her in cautiously, but she looked as if something pleased and amused her. You must promise not to be frightened, not to scream the least bit, or I can't tell you, she answered. Ermengarde felt almost inclined to scream on the spot, but managed to control herself. She looked all round the attic and saw no one. And yet Sarah had certainly been speaking to someone. She thought of ghosts. Is it, something that will frighten me? She asked timorously. Some people are afraid of them, said Sarah. I was at first, but I am not now. Was it, a ghost? quaked Ermengarde. No, said Sarah, laughing. It was my rat. Ermengarde made one bound, and landed in the middle of the little dingy bed. She tucked her feet under her nightgown and the red shawl. She did not scream, but she gasped with fright. Oh! Oh! she cried under her breath. A rat! A rat! I was afraid you would be frightened, said Sarah. But you needn't be. I am making him tame. He actually knows me and comes out when I call him. Are you too frightened to want to see him? The truth was that, as the days had gone on and, with the aid of scraps brought up from the kitchen, her curious friendship had developed, she had gradually forgotten that the timid creature she was becoming familiar with was a mere rat. At first Ermengarde was too much alarmed to do anything but huddle in a heap upon the bed and tuck up her feet, but the sight of Sarah's composed little countenance and the story of Melchizedek's first appearance began at last to rouse her curiosity, and she leaned forward over the edge of the bed and watched Sarah go and kneel down by the hole in the skirting board. He, he won't run out quickly and jump on the bed, will he? She said. No, answered Sarah. He's as polite as we are. He is just like a person. Now watch. She began to make a low, whistling sound, so low and coaxing that it could only have been heard in entire stillness. She did it several times, looking entirely absorbed in it. Ermengarde thought she looked as if she were working a spell. And at last, evidently in response to it, a grey-whiskered, bright-eyed head peeped out of the hole. Sarah had some crumbs in her hand. She dropped them, and Melchizedek came quietly forth and ate them. A piece of larger size than the rest he took and carried in the most businesslike manner back to his home. You see, said Sarah, that is for his wife and children. He is very nice. He only eats the little bits. After he goes back I can always hear his family squeaking for joy. There are three kinds of squeaks. One kind is the children's, and one is Mrs. Melchizedek's, and one is Melchizedek's own. Ermengarde began to laugh. Oh, Sarah, 
she said. You are queer, but you are nice. I know I am queer, admitted Sarah, tearfully, and I try to be nice. She rubbed her forehead with her little brown paw, and a puzzled, tender look came into her face. Papa always laughed at me, she said, but I liked it. He thought I was queer, but he liked me to make up things. I, I can't help making up things. If I didn't, I don't believe I could live. She paused and glanced around the attic. I'm sure I couldn't live here, she added in a low voice. Ermengarde was interested, as she always was. When you talk about things, she said, they seem as if they grew real. You talk about Melchizedek as if he was a person. He is a person, said Sarah. He gets hungry and frightened, just as we do, and he is married and has children. How do we know he doesn't think things, just as we do? His eyes look as if he was a person. That was why I gave him a name. She sat down on the floor in her favorite attitude, holding her knees. Besides, she said, he is a Bastille rat sent to be my friend. I can always get a bit of bread the cook has thrown away, and it is quite enough to support him. Is it the Bastille yet? asked Ermengarde, eagerly. Do you always pretend it is the Bastille? Nearly always, answered Sarah. Sometimes I try to pretend it is another kind of place, but the Bastille is generally easiest, particularly when it is cold. Just at that moment Ermengarde almost jumped off the bed, she was so startled by a sound she heard. It was like two distinct knocks on the wall. What is that? she exclaimed. Sarah got up from the floor and answered quite dramatically. It is the prisoner in the next cell. Becky, cried Ermengarde, enraptured. Yes, said Sarah. Listen, the two knocks men, prisoner, are you there? She knocked three times on the wall herself, as if in answer. That means, yes, I am here, and all is well. Four knocks came from Becky's side of the wall. That means, explained Sarah, then, fellow sufferer, we will sleep in peace. Good night. Ermengarde quite beamed with delight. Oh, Sarah, she whispered joyfully. It is like a story. It is a story, said Sarah. Everything's a story. You are a story, I am a story. Miss Minchin is a story. And she sat down again and talked until Ermengarde forgot that she was a sort of escaped prisoner herself, and had to be reminded by Sarah that she could not remain in the Bastille all night, but must steal noiselessly downstairs again and creep back into her deserted bed. また、テキスト、mp3ダウンロードも合わせてご利用ください。88thpp.com88thpp.com